certainly thankful to be able to assemble, to do the best we can to sing praises unto the Lord, and hopefully they were from the heart. Thankful for the very humble prayer that Brother Jesse Freeman offered publicly on our behalf, and we certainly do live in peerless times, and certainly things are changing around us, but we have confidence in the God of heaven, for he never changes. So never forget that. The greatest blessing we have is a God who never changes. For if we had a God who did change, he would not be God unto us or anyone else. We have the hope of eternal salvation based upon the promises that God has made and never broken. So we have that great faith and that great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I would like to take most of my comments from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, mainly the first five verses. But before we begin to look into God's Word, I want to make a few, have, give you a few thoughts. A while back, I began to ask myself, are the people of the Lord, are God's children excited to come and be with the Lord? Are they enthused about worshiping and serving the Lord? You know, there's a lot to be said about excitement and enthusiasm. When a person becomes excited or enthused about something, it's amazing the effort that he'll put forth. The quality that would give him the drive to do and accomplish what he sets forth to do. You know, that's, that's true in almost anything in life. When we become bored, tired, and weary of something... We have a hard time putting our hearts into it. And I understand as we get older, there are a lot of things in this old world that we no longer are excited about. We're no longer enthused about. But if we're honest, we should come to the house of the Lord with great anticipation, with great excitement and great enthusiasm based on nothing but the fact that Jesus Christ died for poor wretched, bankrupt sinners. And our hope is in Him only, and that hope is to live in a place called glory one day where the troubles of this life exist no more. If you and I can no longer be excited and enthused about that lying head out there on the, in front of us, then what is it that we can get excited about? Honestly, what is it? You know, man waxes worse and worse. Times get more and more difficult. We see a nation that's turning upside down compared to what it was when I was a kid. We see the light of Christianity on a continual decline. And now as the light and the illumination, that's what it means, light always eradicates darkness. As the light does not shine like it once did in this country, and see a city set up on a hill as a collective bunch of lights, that's the church. You're an individual light, but as that light begins to dim and dim, this darkness that was always there, this evil that was always there is far more manifest and we're seeing it in our times. This is not new evil. This is not something that didn't exist. But it is something that we see now because the light of God's children is not as bright as it once was in this land. I have no doubt about that. The Bible tells us not to put our light under a bushel, not to put it under a bed but to put it upon a candlestick that will give light to all that's in the room. 
When you turn on a light in your bedroom, it eradicates darkness, does it not? It gets rid of it. That's what light does in our lives. That's what the light of the Lord Jesus Christ does in this world. The brighter it shines, the more God blesses us not to have to be manifest and see that evil and that darkness that surrounds us as the darkness surrounds the bright shining stars in heaven. So as I ask myself, as the children of God, the Christians in this world, have they lost sight for the fact that they're not excited and they're not enthused about serving the Lord Jesus Christ? I think for most folks, there was a time that they had great excitement, and for some reason or other, that excitement has waned. And, and we're going to try to address that. You know, the Bible is miraculous in addressing these issues. And not only does it address the issues that we have, the faults that we have, but it also gives us the remedies for those problems. The remedies for those problems. That ought to be something that is very, very important to every child of God. God didn't leave us hanging. When God told us to examine ourselves as a church, as an individual, whatever it might be, he didn't leave a way out. He didn't leave us without some way to change. He teaches us to repent, and we'll look at that. Before we get over to Revelations, uh, I want to make a point about God. Our God is an infinite, infinite being. We're finite. What does that mean? It means that God's ways and thoughts are, are different than ours. You know, uh, let's notice what Isaiah chapter 55 has to say concerning this. It says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, Oftentimes, man has great difficulty in understanding the things of God, and rightly so. God is not like us, thank the Lord. God is not a finite being. He has all knowledge. He's sovereign. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. They're just not. So when you begin to think about God and think about what you think God should do and how God should react and act in your, on your behalf or according to what you may or may not be doing, rest assured the way you think is not the way God thinks. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Something that we need to know. Everybody needs to know this. The thoughts of God are not your thoughts. And the way you do things in this life are not the way God does things. They're just not. That is the difference in God. The only true and living God that we come together and assemble to worship is totally and completely different from those who he created, us. All of us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And never will they be as long as we're in this mortal body. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the resurrection Sunday's coming. We're told that this mortal body shall put on, must put on immortality. There's a time that we'll understand things that we don't understand now because we live in the boundaries of time that God created and set us in, and God lives outside of the boundaries of time where time does not exist with God. It has no effect on God. It has all the effect in the world on us, but no effect on God. Therefore, 
God's ways and his thoughts are not ours. We need to remember that as we go on. But you know, God knew that. In his wisdom and his understanding, he knew that we couldn't understand infinite things. So in the Bible, he has taught us in, in, in a, a number of ways that help you and I to understand God's truth. For one example is, many of the teachings in God's Word are laid out in illustrations of a farmer. You know, here in West Texas, most of us have some idea what farming is. And even for those who may have never farmed, they have some idea what gardening is. You plant a seed, a plant comes up, if you will fertilize it, keep the, keep the weeds from choking it out, water it, it will bring forth fruit. You will reap the fruit that that plant bears. That's an illustration of sowing and reaping. When he teaches us spiritual lessons in his word, so many, he'll teach us in things that we understand. Today, we're going to look at a marriage. We're going to look at a marriage that has great implications upon the marriage of a man and a woman, but really it's an illustration of our spiritual marriage. Jesus Christ being the groom and the body of Christ, his people are the bride. We're going to look at what the Lord taught. You know, when God wrote, uh, inspired men to write the Bible, every word that he put in the word of God is for your benefit. Whether you want to hear it or you don't want to hear it or whether you read it or you don't read it, God didn't just put it there to fill up space. There was something profitable in those words for you and for me, and for every one of God's children, down through the journey of their life. Did you know that? It's the greatest book ever written. God promised in Psalms chapter 6 or 12 to preserve it from this generation forever. You have the Bible today, not because some man kept it, because God promised to preserve it, and it will be here until the end of time. That ought to tell us something. If God is preserving his word, and it's a great asset, and it's profitable to us, we ought to study it, we ought to read it, and we ought to hear it preached as often as we can. There's something good for us in it. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's divinely inspired, and it's profitable. All Scripture. You know, we all have our favorite Scriptures. We all have our favorite books. We all want something intriguing in our lives. But every word written in God's Word is profitable to you and I. There's a profit in it. It instructs us. It reproves us. Reproof is showing us the error of our ways. And God in his almightiness doesn't leave us to wonder. He gives us a remedy, a way out, things that we can do. And we'll look at those as we go through. So let's think about things. Also, in the parable of the sower, the, the Bible talks about cultivating, plowing. Really, if you want to talk about it, it talks about hoeing. We all know what hoeing is as farmers. It's getting rid of the weeds that choke out the crop. We'll find sometimes those are cross-referenced. He's talking about the word being received there, but I tell you, there's the things in this life that can choke out a good marriage. Something we need to consider. Something that we will consider as we go through this morning, if the Lord will bless us. We're going to begin and read a few of the last verses in Revelations <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I am he that liveth. And was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Thank God. He rose from the grave. Something that we'll be looking forward to and that we ought to preach every day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. And he goes on and he says, 
and have the keys of hell and death. Write these things which thou hast seen. The first verse of this book begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed unto the Apostle John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos things that you and I need to know. Things that will be profitable and beneficial to you and I. No more profitable than what Paul wrote or any other uh, divine inspired writer wrote, but very important nonetheless. Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Those stars are representative of the pastors of those seven churches. They're better known as the seven churches of Asia Minor. Today, none of those churches exist. Now, as we look into this book a little further and into this first five verses, there is a theme we find in Revelations that's very point blank, and it's repentance. Repentance means to stop doing something that you ought not to be doing and do the right thing. You know, we've quoted this verse, and it makes me wonder about this country. We're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, very familiar to every one of you, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance. Some of us might say, well, you know, uh, I'm not wicked. That's a harsh word. I, I'm not a wicked person. But that word represents any unrighteousness that we've done. Every time we disobey God, it's a form of wickedness. Did you know that? I get amazed at how strong that word sounds. If I was to call you wicked, I'm sure you'd be offended. But this is God and his inspired writer telling his people who are called by his name that they need to turn from their wicked ways. Anything you do that God said you ought not to do is wickedness. And then he went on and said, then will I hear from heaven. Maybe we as God's people have not turned from our wicked ways. I don't know. I'm just bringing that up for consideration. We see the church is declining. We see Christianity has been on a, a, a tailspin for about the last 40 years, 50 years. The Lord doesn't come back. I'm not certain, that, and, and I feel pretty certain considering the teachings of the Old Testament and the children of Israel that they got to a point of living in almost a godless society. Matter of fact, they got to the point of saying, remove the Holy One from us. Go read it in Isaiah chapter 31. He's a hindrance to our way of life. We don't want nothing preached to us but what we want to hear. That's what it said over there. Prophecy unto me smooth things. <clears throat> don't preach anything unto me that would convict me. Anything that would make me feel bad. Anything that would stomp on my parade. That's what, he, that's what they said. Then Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Talking about the hearts of men. Is it possible that we could be in that same condition or certainly headed there? It's a possibility. We must give it consideration, I believe. <coughs> he says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels or the pastors. We know that God is sovereign, do we not? We know that the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, do we not? We know that the pastors are in the hand of the Lord. This is a demonstration of the omnipotent power of Almighty God. 
We're all in the hand of the Lord. There's none that can say unto him, What doest thou? Why hast thou made me thus? We cannot say those things unto God. There's none that can stay his hand. There's none that can stop Almighty God. He's omnipotent. And he holds these pastors of these seven churches in his hand. These seven candlesticks represent these churches. Notice as we <clears throat> get into verse 1 of chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church. We see where he wrote to them and spoke of them back in the, in the book of Acts. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, one of the greatest doctrinal books we have of salvation by grace. Paul wrote many books, but I tell you, Ephesians is a book that is sweet, it is dear, and it is near to every one of us because of the grace of Almighty God. We understand that God, in spite of our sins, in spite of the eternal wrath that you and I deserve, by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It's a grand and glorious book. Now, Jesus himself, being read letters here in Revelations, is speaking and giving a message to each one of these churches. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Here again, the sovereign God in his omnipresence. Do you know that God can walk, the Lord Jesus Christ can be in the midst of every church that's meeting today? Give that some thought for a moment, honestly. Meditate upon that for a moment and know that he fills the universe. He's everywhere present and nowhere absent. They may be meeting on the other side of the United States, and they may be meeting on this side of the United States here in a few hours, or around the world, but Jesus Christ is everywhere present and he's nowhere absent. He was walking in the midst of all these churches, these seven golden candlesticks at one time. Again, Another attribute of God's sovereignty. We've seen he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. We move on to verse 2 and want to spend a few minutes on this. He says, I know thy works. I know thy works. To every church that he spoke to in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he says, I know thy works. Do you know that Jesus not only knows the works of a church, but he knows the works of your life every day? Sometimes I think I live my life, and, and a lot of God's people do, and we get away from the church and away from the thought, and we don't think that the Lord knows anything about what we're doing or does he care. Friends, if that's what we think or we subconsciously think, we need to think again. Let's notice what David says in Psalms 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Does not it amaze you to know that God knows you better than you know yourself or ever will know yourself? He knows you inside and out. You may fool your spouse, you may fool the church, you may fool your co-workers, but you're never going to fool God. He's everywhere present. He's omniscient. I know thy works. We talk about omnipotent, omniscience, omnipresence. Here it is. I know. I know thy works. He said that to every church. 
And individually, every member of every church, that local body of Christ, he knows your works. He knows your thoughts. Notice what it says. Thou knowest my downsetting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Do you know that God knows what you think and how you're going to think long before you think it? Is that not miraculous in itself? That ought to have us set up and think about how we act, behave, and speak, and talk, and live our life. The Lord knows. It's amazing to me. It is amazing to me of the sovereignty of God. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He knows your thoughts. He searched you out. He knows your thoughts afar off. He knows your ways. Even though his thoughts are higher than your thoughts and his ways are not your ways, God knows the way you're going in life, where you're headed, what you're doing, what you're thinking. He knows it all. You may be fooling me or, or I may be fooling you, but we're not fooling the Lord. The Lord knows. That's the greatness of the God that we serve, the only true and living God. For there is no word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. I tell you what, whether we speak it or think it, he knows it, does he not? He knows our thoughts are far off. He knows the words that we speak. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. You know, I thought about excitement and certain things about Almighty God and how he is infinite and we're finite beings. We're mortal and he's immortal. His knowledge is too great to attain. Let me give you an example before we get back to chapter 2. We're told that God is everlasting, eternal. That he had no beginning of days or ending of days. I want you to dwell and meditate on that just a moment. You know, in my mind, if you had a start, I guess there could be some possibility to going on and on and on. But when it comes to the idea that God never had a starting point, that he had no beginning of days, my mind, my finite mind, just cannot grasp and comprehend that. That's why the thoughts of God and the ways of God are far above our thoughts and our ways. David just said that knowledge was so high he could not attain unto it, and neither can I, and I don't believe anyone else sitting in this building can attain unto the knowledge of knowing that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, will, always was, never had a starting point. I tell you, that'll blow, some, that'll blow some mental circuits if you dwell on it long enough because we can't attain unto knowledge that's that high. So we see as Jesus Christ speaks to this church, the church of Ephesus, he shows forth his sovereignty in a message that he's delivering to a church that I think is needful to the Lord's churches. And all these messages are, they all are directed in, at different points. Think about the message of the last church, the Laodicea. <coughs> Verse 15 says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold or hot. I would that thou were cold or hot. What's the Lord saying there? He says, you're not cold and you're not hot. You're middle ground. Notice what he says. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Well, you can tell uh, the Lord is not real happy with the condition of these folks. They're just lukewarm Christians. They're not engaged. 
they're, they're, they got problems, and all the problems were addressed. Notice what he says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. How many people in the good old prosperous United States of America, God's children, don't believe they need anything, including the Lord? Anybody like that? I mean, we've been blessed above measure. There's no question about it. Blessed beyond measure with the goodness of the land. Things we have here to consider. He says, I, getting back to chapter 2, he says, I know thy works as a church and as an individual, and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and has borne, and has patience for my name's sake, has labored. And has not fainted. These are some amazing words here as he begins his message to the church at Ephesus. He tells these folks that he's seen their good works. At our first observation of what's taking here, taking place, as we examine it, it appears that the Lord Jesus Christ is condoning these folks for their good works and, and their good labor said they were serving him through the good works and suffering for his name's sake. And it says that it was very evident that they were faithful to identify error and to not have fellowship with those who were in error. He goes on and he says in verse 3, it says, you've endured, you've had patience, endurance, and you've not fainted. You hadn't thrown in the towel and quit. You know, he's addressing people that are continuing to go to church here, but he has an issue with these folks. Everything looked good on the outside at first examination here. It says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So Jesus, after apparently condoning this church or commending it for its good works, is suffering for his name's sake, being faithful in identifying error and not having fellowship with that error, he brings a harsh reality to their lives. He says, For I have somewhat against thee, for thou hast left thy first love. He says, Remember therefore from whence thou art falling, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick, out of his place, except thou repent. Not only did he show them their error, he said it was very serious, something that they should undertake and, and have serious concern about. You know, when Jesus Christ moves the, removes the candlestick, the church may linger, but it's not going to last. If Jesus is not in the midst of the church and in our presence, if his spirit is not there, the church will not continue on and on and on. We know for a fact that these seven churches, even though this was long ago, they don't exist as they did when John was exiled to the island of Patmos. So Jesus here is giving this message to the church at Ephesus, and it's a serious message with serious consequences. There are several things that we'll get back and look at here in just a moment as we go forward. But we need to give this thought. We talked about a marriage. I believe that the lesson here is to the churches 
and to individuals, and it teaches us about our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the lesson under consideration. This is the warning that he is heeding unto this church, but I believe he's heeding it unto us oftentimes as individuals. If you go over to Paul's message in Ephesians chapter 5, he begins to deal with our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the church with a marriage. It's very unique how compatible and comparable and parallel the marriage of the body of Christ is with Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, the groom, the husband. We just sang that song, He is the husband, that we had before we knew it. And how it's compatible and comparable with a natural marriage. Marriage is something that we're taught in the Bible. As I said, farming was something that God used to help us understand things because his ways and his thoughts are beyond the capability of our minds. We all have some understanding of marriage, do we not? Most of us in this building have either been married or know something about marriage at some point in our life. So Jesus illustrates to us this church in the terms of marriage. So as we begin to study the fellowship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how we need to approach it. But there's great lessons to be had concerning our personal marriages, our families, our husbands, and our wives. There's only one marriage that's instituted in the Bible, and that's the marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. That's the end of the story. I don't care who's getting married, men and men, women and women, God instituted marriage between a man and a woman, and that was it, period. No other. Now, the day has come that they call evil good and good evil. And it's no worse than the other sin. I'm not here to pound on one sin being worse than the other, but I'm not here to condone what somebody wants to do that is sinful. So as we stand before the Lord's people, I will always speak the truth. Marriage was instituted between a man and a woman, husband and a wife. When a man was to leave his mother and father and be joined together with his wife, they were to become one. We all know the story. We use it oftentimes when we enter into marriage. Now let's begin to consider what Jesus Christ had said to the church and how that applies not only to the church, but it applies to our marriages. It, it, it's really significant. It's something that people need to take to heart. You see, when we lose our excitement, we lose our enthusiasm, it doesn't matter if it's just in the church. It's going to make a vast difference in your, in your marriage. And this church tells us something here that we got to consider, is it happening to us? It was happening to the church at Ephesus in those days. Is it happening to the church today? Is it happening in your marriage? You know, when you were married, let's look at a natural marriage. When you were married... Most of us, if not all of us, we stood before God and a number of witnesses and we committed our love to our spouse and to him or her only. Promises we made unto God. You know, when you think about all the promises made unto God and all the promises that we've broken... It just makes you more thankful for God Almighty because he's never broken a promise. If you don't understand grace from that simple definition, you'll never get it. 
He never broke a promise, and we continuously break promises. I'm not just talking in the realm of marriage, in all realms of life, but our God has never broken a promise. He's not capable of lying. If he said, I promise something, you can take it to the bank. You can count on it. We also said that we would give of our time to our spouse. We would give of our natural possessions, our love. And that we would do this forever until death do us part. These are the commitments that we made. If we're having sweet fellowship in a marriage, I can assure you we're not neglecting our spouse and we're not letting other things become first in our life. Now, when I talk about this natural marriage, don't lose sight of the marriage we have as God's children as the body of Christ to the Lord Jesus. Remember what he said. For I have somewhat against thee, for thou hast left thy first love. If we're in sweet fellowship with the Lord, or sweet fellowship with our husband or our wife in our marriage, we're not neglecting the one we love. We're not allowing things in this world to become something that affects our marriage or, or, or to take a lead become more important to us, if you would, in our marriage. And that includes self. Probably the greatest sin is self. Paul told Timothy, he said, in the last days, peerless times shall come. The first thing he says, that men shall be lovers of their own selves. Men has always wanted to be their own God. They wanted to take the word of God and they wanted to bind it and blend it into what they thought and the way they wanted it. But we're to read the word of God as thus saith the Lord. You know, I think about the great weapons that Satan has. These are great. He was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. Do you know what one of Satan's great tools is? Is to make you believe a lie. When you do something that God said you ought not to do, Satan has deceived you. You, you may not want to believe that, but he has. He's helped you justify your reasoning for not doing it. For this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. When we do something that God said we ought not to do, we believe Satan's lie. That's what we, I mean, there's just no other way around it. Satan has helped tell us it's okay. You're justified in doing that. Do it the way you want. Just go read what he told Eve. He convinced her very well, did he not? Once she had one thing not to do. And Satan said it won't be that way. And she believed him. And she disobeyed God. That's the way Satan works. That's the way he takes things. But sadly to say, as time goes on in many of these natural marriages, husbands and wives neglect one another. Or they take, there's things in this world and in this life that take place of that person. You know, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, your spouse should be the most important thing to you in your life. Not your children, your spouse. Your children are important, don't get me wrong. And I'm telling you how God said it. He is the rock, his work is perfect. God didn't set up marriage in an imperfect way. 
Man being imperfect has a hard problem of following the pattern and the perfect way that God set forth in our lives regarding anything. Man has always thought he had a better way to do it than God, and that includes worship and every other aspect of life. That's why we're sinners and we're disobedient, and sometimes we justify ourselves with the help of Satan when we know we're not doing the right thing. But you know, that's the reality of life. That's what's real. I'm not here to step on toes or my own or anybody else's, but it's just the reality of life, and that's the way it is. Satan is a force in our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. Have you ever seen someone married, for example, that went down through the road of life, and as time went on, their marriage just didn't seem to have much zeal to it? I ask you, are you zealous for the Lord? Are you excited for the Lord today? Are you really have enthusiasm when you get up to come to the house of the Lord? Do you go to prayer the night before praying for whoever it may be that stands and preaches, praying for yourself that God would open your heart and you would receive a message to the honor and glory of his name, that you might stand and praise him with all that you have. Praise for your, pray for your brothers and your sisters. Are we going to the house of the Lord with the right attitude? Or has our excitement, our enthusiasm played out with time? Not only does it happen in churches, it happens in marriages. I want you to notice what happened in this church. They hadn't quit attending church yet. Apparently that came later down the line because the church is not longer there. But I believe it's kind of like in the parable of the sower where the, sowed was, uh, the seed was sowed in the thorns. And the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word. It can choke us out from being in the church, but it can also choke our marriages because we've allowed other things to choke out that relationship and that sweet fellowship that a marriage is called upon to have. And you know that, that doesn't just have to be early on. We'll look at that in just a minute. But I want you to notice this was the condition of this church. They were neglecting the Lord Jesus Christ. They were going to church out of habit. They were religionist, if you want to call it that. They knew they ought to go to the house of God. And what they'd done had become a ritual. You know, that was a problem they had in the Old Testament. They had lost sight of God, and it was more important for them to, to do this and do that according to the law than it was to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. These people had become uh, bored, I guess. Something had happened to them and they had lost their zeal. <coughs> you know anybody that's married that, thank the Lord, maybe haven't gotten a divorce except but that they still don't have much of that uh, excitement? They don't have much of that sweet fellowship left in their marriage? Maybe the marriage has become one-sided. As I was reading this this time, and I've read it many times, I found something in here that I, I just thought was extremely important that we need to bring out. Jesus here began to tell this church, he said, you are so faithful to recognize error and not to have fellowship with error. And I thought to myself, the greatest error they had, they didn't even recognize. Think about that for just a moment. How many times when marriages go bad and they get in trouble, do you recognize your own error in that marriage? 
These people had left their first love and all they could do was do what we do. They could see the errors and the faults and the sins of everybody else, including their spouse, including other church members. They recognized the error of these apostles that were preaching unto them and they were lying. They found them to be liars. But they didn't see anything wrong with themselves, did they? Until Jesus said, I got, a, I got a big announcement for you folks. Big announcement. There's going to be some harsh consequences for you folks if you don't take heed and repent. If you don't turn from your wicked way, as it says over there. He says, I'll come quickly and remove the candlestick. But Jesus didn't just teach us this about error and not give us a way out. Repentance is. We know that one of the great themes is repentance. To repent. That literally means to turn away from something you're doing that you know is not right. If you're disobedient to one of God's commands, all you got to do is quit being disobedient to one of God's commands and start doing what you should. That's what's right. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is not fulfilling how we feel or fulfilling how we think because his thoughts and his ways are not our thoughts or our ways. These folks was quick to recognize these people that were preaching the wrong doctrine. They said they were apostles and they were found not to be apostles. They were liars. But they never seemed to take self-examination. How often do you see that kind of thing take place in a natural marriage? It's always the other's fault. But this all comes about so often when we begin to, to neglect our spouse. We begin to place our own personal wants and wishes. You see, when we got married, we promised to give up our wants for the good of the marriage. That's hard to do, isn't it? Easy to preach and hard to live. Long as I'm happy in the marriage, everybody's happy. Anybody got that attitude? Long as, it, as my spouse is doing everything that I want her to do, everything's good. And you know, I stand here today... My wife would probably tell you I'm guilty of that. But I'm just being honest according to thus saith the Lord. Notice what Jesus said. Remember therefore whence thou art fallen. In other words, Peter said over in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said, I will always stir your minds by way of remembrance. Remember from whence thou art fallen. I want you to think about how life was before you met your spouse. Think about it. And then how was life after you met them? Did you want to be with them every night? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking from my own perspective and my own life. Were you excited? Was there any enthusiasm that maybe you don't have now? You know, he started up here and he said, I know thy works. I'm going to tell you something. Being a good church member, being a good husband or a good wife takes work. It don't, you don't just wake up and it happens. It's never going to be that way. For we are his creation created unto good works. It takes work. It takes engagement in a marriage just like it does in a church. It takes more than just showing up occasionally and saying, I'm a good church member. It means being engaged and being a part of it. And you know why we can understand that? Because you know if you've been married, if you don't have that, your marriage will start going south in a hurry. You know, maybe you're still married, but maybe you've lost that loving feeling as that 
bunch of the righteous brothers who ever sang that song. Maybe you have. But it ought not to be that way. Maybe you put your own desires and pleasures before your spouse's. I've got to be fulfilled for this marriage to be any good. Maybe the church has become the same way. If I don't get what I want, I don't hear what I want, the right man ain't preaching, whatever our excuses may be, I'm not going to engage. This was the problem with the church at Ephesus. Could it be the problem of the church today, I ask? He said, remember. Do you remember how it was when you joined the church and you were baptized? You were raised out of that water signifying the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? I tell you, I've seen, in the time I've been in the church, I've seen people get baptized, engaged, and excited. And just like a marriage, time goes by and it wanes. The excitement goes away. The enthusiasm goes away. I'm not here to tell you that every day for 40 or 50 years that you're, you can be in the same state you were when you were dating your spouse. But I tell you, if you love the Lord, if you love your husband, if you love your wife, if you're engaged, you will work at it. You will do what's necessary. You will put them first. That's the lesson that's being taught here. You know, if we don't, marriages will be two people living together if they don't divorce, and hopefully they don't, but they'll just be tolerating one another. They'll have lost that sweet fellowship. They won't have anything in common because the other never pleases the other because they're always looking at themselves. They're always looking in the mirror trying to please me, myself, and I. Marriage was never intended that way, not in a natural marriage, not in a spiritual marriage with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was to always have the preeminence. You know, one thing I like about God's Word, and I find myself very, very guilty if you study his word, you can take a self-examination on a periodic basis. Am I excited to come to the house of the Lord? Am I ready to sing praises unto him? Am I praying that God will touch my heart in such a way that I won't do nothing but to honor and glorify his name all the days of my life? We're told in John chapter 13 and verse 34, this is a new commandment that I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. Matthew 25 says, when you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and to do that, we make a sacrifice. We get out of bed. We could stay home and do what the world does and entertain ourselves and relax. Satan will, Satan will make you believe that's what you need to be doing, and it's worked on a lot of folks. But also in your, your marriage between your spouse and you, there's got to be sacrifice. The Bible's all about sacrificial love. You know, Jesus done what he done. He went to the cross and died for us, not, not because we were such lovable people, not because we'd done it all right. But he loved us before all eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. And his love for you is unconditional. And he promised, he promised to die for us, and he did. We know that now. He promised to rise from the dead. He did that, and we know that now. And now we look back at Jesus knowing that one day, because of his promises always being fulfilled, he will come back, and he will gather 
us up and take us home to be with him. We were excited when we were dating our spouse. We were excited when we first came into the church. And I know that I've seen people come to church for a number of years. And as time went on, it waned. They, they, they got a little slower and they got a little slower. And I can tell you something now that hadn't even been here for years. Satan finally convinced them that they didn't need the church. They didn't need to assemble. They didn't need it. Satan's hard at work. He never gives up. He wakes up with you every morning. He goes to bed with you every night. He knows your weaknesses. He knows my weaknesses. And if we have an opening, he's going to get there, just like he got there with Eve, Adam and Eve. He's real. He's dangerous. And we need to be on guard every day. Watch and pray that we are not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I encourage you to sacrifice your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, but I also encourage you to have that sweet fellowship in your marriage. It should be from the day you're married to the day you die. Yeah, we change because we get older. But you shouldn't lose that fellowship with your spouse like a lot of them do. You know, God instituted marriage at the very beginning. He instituted family at the very beginning. Some people might say, well, I got a good marriage and I don't go to church. I'll tell you right now, if you got a good marriage, you'll have a lot better marriage if you put Jesus Christ as the head of your marriage. If you make him more important than your marriage, it'll be far better. But I can assure you, as the family fails and as the marriage fails like it has so much in this country, you're going to see a country fall into immorality as we're seeing now. The morals have just declined tremendously, and I think they'll continue to decline if Christianity declines. I encourage you to give thought to this sacrificial love that Jesus had for you and I that we might return it and that we might exhibit it between our husbands and our wives.